Well, here we are, the first week of a new year, 2020, and you, like me, are probably wondering what 2020 has in store for you. I'm excited that uh, next week, 2020 has in store for me a trip to Israel, and I covet your prayers. I ask you to pray for me and the whole team of uh, 20-some-odd Georgia Baptist pastors. We'll be flying out on Friday and coming back the following Saturday, and pray for me that next Sunday. Matt's going to go ahead and preach for me that Sunday, um, because I'm afraid I'm going to have some jet lag. (laughs) But but I'll be here, and we'll have the Lord's Supper together on that Sunday. Next Sunday, Dr. Dupree, who is our pastor emeritus, for those of you who don't know Dr. Dupree, he will be here, uh, and he will be preaching next week. So I hope you'll come back next Sunday, hear what he has to say. It will truly bless your heart. But maybe you're thinking... What's 2020 got in store for me? You're thinking, you know, for 2020, what am I going to do to be healthier? Maybe you're thinking, what am I going to do to get in shape and lose weight? Or what am I going to do to get out of debt? Or what am I going to do to help slow my family down? Basically, this time of year, what we're looking for, what we're wondering is, what's my game plan going to be for this year? And that's all fine. And that's great. Those are good questions to ask. But what if in addition to looking for our game plan, we also look for God's game plan? Because God's game plan takes the questions a step further. We ask, what can I do to be a better Christian? What can I do to make my home not just a happier home, but a holier home? What can I do to make my church healthier and stronger? What can I do to help us reach our neighbors and even the nation's for Christ. What is God's game plan for you this year? What is His game plan for our church in 2020? That's a good thing to know. But just knowing God's game plan isn't enough. Just having the plan, just knowing what we're supposed to do isn't enough. You know, there, there are some Christians today who they just expect God to save their lost family and friends. They just expect, I don't know, Him to send an angel, I guess, to, to reveal the gospel to them. They make no effort to do that themselves. Some Christians expect God to just help their kids grow up, to be good men and women, good citizens, of faithful, loving spouses and parents who are going to love Jesus and follow Him no matter what. But they don't even put forth the effort to have their family in worship and Sunday school on a regular basis. They don't take the time to read God's Word and pray as a family. Some Christians expect God just to bring spiritual awakening to our country, just to save our country. They just expect God to revive our churches, but they don't pray for revival or awakening. They don't fast. They don't give or go on mission to reach their community, their country, or their world. See, for too many Christians today, they just don't think that they've been called by God to serve. That's for someone else to do. Now they say, someone else will do that. I'm sure somebody else will volunteer for that. But guess what? I have looked over this church's membership role many times. And Matt, here's what I've discovered. There's not a member of this church whose name is someone. Too bad. Because we're always hearing someone's going to do it. There's not a person who's attended here whose name is somebody else. That person doesn't go here. But you do. God has called you to serve. He's called me to serve. 
If you're a Christian, God expects you to take responsibility for your family, for your church, for your community. Expects it of you. He gives each and every one of us a game plan. But guess what? We have to execute the plays. No one else is going to model Christ-likeness. No one else is going to pray for. No one else is going to lead in worship and stewardship and honesty. Your children the way you will. No one will do for your children what you will do for them. No one else can bring them to church like you can. No one else can share the gospel with that lost family member, friend, coworker, or classmate like you can. And if God is calling you maybe to serve as a deacon, to teach a Sunday school class, to, to sing in the choir, whatever it may be, no one else can do that but you if you're the person that God is speaking to. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 6. In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them. That's you and me. We're the parts. We're the members of the body. He's placed every one of us just as He wanted them to be. So if you're here and you're a member of First Baptist Church, guess what? You're not here by accident. You're here on purpose. God has brought you to this church for a reason. He has a place of service for you. And if you aren't serving where God has placed you, then you are rebelling against God. You're living in disobedience. See, the problem is we allow the world's way of thinking to pull us to the sideline of serving God. We give up on the game plan and we go and we sit on the sidelines because the world tells us that you've got to put yourself first. You've got to look after numero uno. Follow your heart and your dreams or follow the money. That's what the world says. That's not the way God designed us to live. It's not the kind of life that Jesus saves us for. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, they both share a story that illustrates this truth. One day, the mother of two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, their mother comes up to Jesus and she asks him for something from a worldly perspective. She wants Jesus to make make her sons great. So look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. In other words, she wanted them to be in the highest places possible. His right-hand man, his left-hand man. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now when the ten, the rest of the disciples, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. I mean, you can just hear them. Just saying, what are you doing? Why did you ask that? What is wrong with you? Yeah, you think you're better than we are? So they were kind of fussing with each other over this. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Service in God's kingdom is not about getting your way. 
It's not about demanding things be done according to your liking. It's not about being recognized for your contributions. It's not about having your needs met. Rather, service in the kingdom is all about denying yourself, dying to yourself, taking up the cross of sacrificial service and following after the example of Jesus. It puts others' needs first and your wants last. This morning, here in a little while in our service, we're going to recognize and bless the men in our church who have heard God's call to serve as deacons. We're going to install the newly elected eight men who are going to serve a three-year term beginning now, and we're going to commission all 24 of our active 2020 deacons. But in this message, I'm not just speaking to those 24 men. I'm also speaking to every man in this building that's been ordained as a deacon. Because guess what? There are only two offices in the New Testament church. The office of deacon and the office of the pastor-teacher, also referred to as the elder of the church. Okay, those are the only two. And so when a preacher is called to preach, that's a calling that is imprinted on your heart. It lasts for the rest of your life. The same is true for the call to be a deacon. Being a deacon is more like being a pastor than it is like being a member of a committee. You don't just rotate off of it and say, I'm done being a deacon. You may not be in active service, but guess what? You're still a deacon called by God and ordained. And you still have a responsibility to serve and to lead by example. So I'm speaking to you as well this morning. But also I'm speaking to every member of our church. Because like I said, God has called all of us to service. He has placed every one of us here and shaped us for a ministry. He calls us all to lead one another in doing good works. He calls us to serve one another out of love, to meet each other's needs, to put others before ourselves, to forgive one another, to bear with one another, even as Christ has forgiven and bears with us. We are to treat each other that way. And yes, our deacons, they lead the way. They set the pace. They are models for us of what Christ-like servant leadership should look like. They're there to help the pastors lay a solid foundation for our church to grow and to worship and to serve and to go and tell and to be on mission. But how can we all keep our hearts in check as we serve and lead? How can we make sure the world's priorities don't sideline us and get us off of God's game plan? I want to offer three questions this morning that can serve as tests for us to check our hearts and to keep our minds in the game. The first test is a simple question. What does servant leadership look like? What does servant leadership look like? I heard a story one Sunday. This isn't about anybody in our church. This is a made-up story, okay? just want to put that out there. I, I, I read a story about one uh, rather pompous-looking old deacon one Sunday who had been asked to speak to a rather rowdy group of boys in Sunday school. And so he wanted to press upon them what it meant to be a Christian and what a Christian should look like. And so he stood before those boys and he said, Now, why do people call me a Christian? And after a little bit of awkward silence, one of the boys said, Well, maybe it's because they don't know you very well. That may, be, that may be a little more true for some of us than we like to admit. But how will people know that we are Christians? 
How will people know that we are servant leaders in Jesus' church? Well, we follow Jesus' example. We do the things that He did the way He did them. We have the same attitude, the same mindset as Christ. In John chapter 13, Jesus girded Himself with a towel. He took a basin of water and He went to each of His disciples and He humbled themselves and did a work that nobody wanted to do. He washed their feet. It says in John 13, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, a servant leader can frequently be found working behind the scenes, maybe literally behind the scenes. They may be the ones building the sets for the drive-through nativity or building the sets around the building for vacation Bible school. They're behind the scenes working. They're doing the work that no one else wants to tackle. They're doing dirty, often thankless jobs that no one will ever know about. Servant leader seeks to make sure that other people get the credit for a successful event or a prosperous ministry or program. They rejoice when other people succeed and do well. At a church dinner, your servant leader is rarely going to be seen at the head table being waited on. You're going to see the servant leader among the tables, filling tea glasses and serving at the food line and taking out the trash, maybe even washing the dishes in the kitchen. Jesus goes on to clarify this example that he set for his disciples. In verses 34 and 35, he said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so also must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, someone who seeks to be served rather than to serve isn't operating out of love. Someone who seeks glory for their service isn't serving out of love. Someone who uses their service to manipulate others in order to get their way isn't serving out of love. What does servant leadership look like? How can you measure its effectiveness? Not by the numbers of people under your authority. Not by the accolades that you might receive. No, it's measured by the numbers of people you serve. It's measured by the energy and the resources expended and by the time sacrificed. That's what servant leadership looks like. That's the first question we can test our hearts with. The second question is this. What, do, what does a servant leader say to others? So we've look, kind of looked at what a servant leader does, but what does a servant leader say to others. Mark chapter 10 tells us the story of the blind beggar of Jericho. And Jesus walked up to this blind man and he asked this blind man a question he had never heard. And this man lived off the scraps and off the, the spare change of other people. People rarely gave him any attention whatsoever, yet Jesus comes up to him, stands before him, and this man hears the voice of Jesus, ask him a question no one's ever asked him before. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? That's the question that a servant leader asks others. 
What can I do for you? Now, what's interesting is in our earlier story in Matthew 20, when Jesus is approached by John and James's mother, Jesus asks this same question. He says to James and John and the mother, what is it you want me to do for you? What can I do for you? Now, in that instance, Jesus refused to do what they wanted. To the blind man of Jericho, Jesus gave him his request. He gave him sight. So we can conclude then that just because you ask someone the question, what can I do for you, does not obligate you to just do whatever it is they ask, right? Jesus didn't do that. The Lord doesn't send us out to just mindly obey every needy person we come across. He wants us to use discernment and wisdom. I mean, there were times that Jesus turned people away. There are times that Jesus would go and heal in a town and he would leave to go to another town and wouldn't heal everybody there. So he doesn't expect us to give what everybody asks, but the servant leader should be someone who does ask, who has that compassionate heart that wants to be useful, that that seeks to meet needs in whatever way they can meet needs, who looks for ways to serve in the church according to how God has shaped them. You don't have to say yes to everything. But your tendency should be to say yes. Does that make sense? See, a servant leader operates from an attitude of abundance, not scarcity. There are two worldviews. Two perspectives people can have. One of abundance, one of scarcity. People who have a scarcity-based outlook are people who are asking, what's in it for me? They live in fear that their needs won't be met. They want their ego stroke. They want pats on their back. They want their way. And and the person who operates from a scarcity mindset is more often likely to say no than yes when they're asked to serve. Now, they may not come right out and say no. They'll say something like, let me pray about it first, hoping that you'll go ask someone else. Or maybe they'll say, you know what, I would, but I'm just so busy right now. Or maybe they'll get super spiritual and say, you know what, that's just not my spiritual gift. Or they'll say, I'm not very good at that. Or I'm not very comfortable with that. Not that those can't be legitimate reasons, but this kind of person will more than likely say one of those things than they'll ever say, I'd love to. So we need to be more like a person who operates from a perspective of abundance. Not scarcity. Because guess what? We serve a God who owns all the cattle on a thousand hills, don't we? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We serve a God who gives us everything that we need. He fills us with His Spirit. And so a person who has that kind of an abundance-based outlook truly believes that God is going to provide. That God is going to take care of them. They don't have to look out for themselves. That if God opens a door, guess what? You should go through it. That if God calls you to something, He's going to provide everything you need to get the job done. These are people of grace. And they live in the flow of God's grace with an attitude of gratitude that wants to help, that wants to serve, that wants to be that channel of blessing to others. Their natural bent is towards saying yes. In fact, if that describes you, you may actually have to be careful that you don't say yes to too many things. You need to pay attention to your own soul as well. There's a danger for these kinds of people. They can allow themselves, excuse me, to be stretched too thin. You know, sometimes people might say yes to a ministry opportunity, and then they say yes to another, and then they say yes to another, 
And you know what? You're human. You can't do everything, can you? You can't be in all times and all places, right? And so maybe one of those things they say yes to, they do a halfway job. Or they don't follow through. Or they say yes to so many things that eventually they kind of burn themselves out. And suddenly those people start backing away and handing off everything because they've said yes to too many things. So there's a balance to strike there. There's wisdom to have here. And and one of my jobs as a pastor and one of the jobs I think of our deacons is to help guard the flock and help make sure that we're not letting people work themselves to the bone. But what is commendable for these kinds of people is they want to help. They want to get involved. They want to serve and to give. You know, if we could all have that kind of mentality with a dose of wisdom and discipline to restrain ourselves where we need to, to realize that we're not Jesus, we can't do it all, what a difference it would make in this church. What a difference we could make for the kingdom of God if we would have that kind of bent towards saying, what can I do to help? How can I serve you? What do you need from me? Maybe you've been at work or at school or someplace, maybe you're at church, you've been working on a project, you guys are trying to get something done, and somebody unexpected just kind of comes in and just says, what can I do to help? Well, isn't that person a breath of fresh air? Everybody takes a deep sigh of relief. Yes, thank you. That person suddenly becomes the most popular person in the room. What if we all strove to be that person? That's what servant leadership asks. They just want to bless others. A servant leader wants to make other people successful. But the third question for us to test our hearts is not just what does servant leadership look like, what do we say to others, but what do servant leaders ask of themselves? What do they say to themselves? You ever talk to yourself? Sure you do. We all do. All the time. Every day. We have conversations going on in our head constantly. I like to think about it this way. There's a little commentator. You know, like a sports commentator. There's a little commentator sitting in your head who's narrating your life, right? All day, every day, it's telling you things. It's interpreting life's events. It's telling you things about the people that you meet throughout your day. This person tells you how to feel about yourself, how to feel about others. Sometimes this little voice makes you prideful, sometimes shameful. Sometimes confident, sometimes afraid. We always have this conversation going on in our head. But the problem is that little commentator isn't always reliable, right? His perspective is skewed depending on your temperament. Are you a glass half empty kind of person or a glass half full kind of person? Are you the abundance or the scarcity mentality? You know, I, I saw a thing that said that the pessimist says the glass is half empty. The optimist says the glass is half full. But the pragmatist says, just pour it in a smaller glass and stop complaining already, right? (laughs) But, But we're one of those people. The point is, a wise person takes what that inner voice says with a grain of salt. The spiritual person holds up everything that little voice says to the unchanging and always true Word of God. Paul says it this way, take every thought captive to Christ. And by doing that, by submitting that inner voice to Jesus, it allows us to give ourselves some sanctified self-talk. And what is sanctified self-talk? Well, it's it's where we allow the Holy Spirit to be that counter-punch to our inner voice, to tell us the truth we need to hear. It happens when we repeat Scripture to ourselves, when we meditate on the lyrics of a praise and worship song. We call our souls to attend to God 
and to seek His kingdom first. For example, Jesus gives us an example of this in Luke 17.10. He says, when you've done everything commanded, you say to yourself, we are unprofitable servants, we have done our duty. Jesus is instructing us to talk to ourselves. Say to yourself, we are unprofitable servants, we've only done our duty. He's saying that with that kind of sanctified self-talk, we can drive a stake through the heart of our ego. We can rebuke our pride and restrain our thirst for recognition and release ourselves to love God and others. Sometimes we have to do that. We have to give ourselves a strong talking to to put ourselves in the right mindset. an, An immature person may be willing to work for a project, maybe even being willing to sacrifice for a project, but it's always because there's something in it for them. Maybe they want recognition. Maybe they want favored status. And sadly, I know people, and you do too, have dropped out of church because they felt like their hard work wasn't appreciated enough. And maybe it wasn't. But oftentimes those kinds of people are trapped by their ego with this insatiable craving to be recognized. Now, it helps to bear in mind when Jesus says this. Put that verse back up there. When Jesus says this, He's not saying that we're to say that to other people, are we? He didn't say, I'm supposed to look at you and say, well, you're an unprofitable servant. You've only done your duty. That wouldn't go over very well, would it? Don't recommend that. Nor does it say that we should expect others to say that to us. No, we are to say that to ourselves. It's all about controlling our self-centeredness to free ourselves to bless other people. So as you serve Christ and His church and His kingdom, check your heart by asking these three questions. What does servant leadership look like, and is that what I look like? What does a servant leader say to others? And am I saying that to other people? And what does a servant leader say to themselves? Am I giving myself the kind of self-talk I need to hear? Talk that's biblical and spirit-informed and challenges me to grow closer to Christ. Here in the room today, we have men who have answered that call to serve as deacons, to be servant leaders. These men have answered God's call to serve as deacons. But God gives a call to all of us here today. God calls us first and foremost to salvation. And maybe one of you here today is hearing that call. You know that you need to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, to welcome Him into your life as your Lord and your Master. God also calls us to publicly demonstrate that through baptism. Maybe you need to come forward. You know that you're already a Christian, but you want to let this church know and follow Jesus and believers' baptism. Maybe you're already a baptized Christian. What's God calling you to do? Well, He could be calling you to unite with this church family. If you've been worshiping with us, and you know this is where God would have you to grow and to serve, then you come and join this congregation as part of our family. Maybe God is calling you to serve. Maybe God is calling you to full-time ministry. Maybe God is calling you to go to that classmate, that coworker, that neighbor, that friend, and share the gospel. Whatever God is calling you to do, would you stand and pray with me and then come and be obedient to what He says today? Father, we are thankful that Jesus answered the call. As we celebrated Christmas and have finished celebrating Christmas today, Lord, we are so thankful that Christ came to be the incarnate Word of God, to die on that cross for our sins, to rise victorious from the grave. We're thankful for the men of the New Testament and the women of the New Testament who served 
by writing Scripture, by being deacons, by going and telling others the good news, by ministering alongside Christ in His life, by helping to shape the men who would lead Israel and lead the church. We're thankful for their answering that call. But Lord, there are people here today that just like those men and women of old need to hear Your voice and answer Your call. And I pray they would come today in obedience and trust. In Jesus' name we pray.